Hi, this is Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Minds. Today's guest is Mike Jordan, a food writer in Atlanta who also works for numerous national publications. Hi, Mike. Thanks for being here. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. So could you please introduce yourself to listeners who may not know who you are and please spare no detail? All right. I'm Mike Jordan. Um, Michael B. Jordan, but I go by Mike Jordan because of reasons that might make sense when you walk around as Michael B. Jordan these days. You have two people who have stolen your identity. Um, <laughs> but I am a journalist here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I actually live in East Point, just uh, southwest of downtown, but um, from Huntsville, Alabama, um, born in Nashville, true southeasterner, like very southern person. Um, and been in Atlanta since 1995, uh, came here to attend Morehouse, and my older brother graduated from Morehouse in 1990, so I kind of got an early look at it and saw how cool the AUC was and was like, man, this seems like an awesome thing to do, especially growing up in a very boring city like Huntsville, Alabama. So um, been here since then. I'm you know, pre-Olympics and still when Freaknik was going on. So I tell people <laughs> I actually have more Atlanta credibility than they may have if they were born after a certain age. People who think they outdo me, though, just because you were born at Grady Hospital doesn't mean that you can, you know, test my cred and things. So, uh, yeah, I just love the city. And I've been a journalist since about 1997. Um I started, uh, got my first published uh, stuff in Rolling Out, um, which is a Black-owned publication here, started by a guy named Munson Steed, who I always shout out because a lot of us in Atlanta, a lot of Black writers started at Rolling Out. Um, so that was where I first started off when I was reviewing music uh, and doing some business profiles. And I was also in the music industry or at least at that point attempting to be so i was interning uh all over the place because i was a really big music student more like actual um concert music and band so i was a drum major in my high school band which was like a big black high school band which is an experience um and an alto saxophone player i still play but i was like first chair in the city in my age group and seventh chair in the state. So, you know, I was really reading music, composing music and all that. Someone said, you should go to Atlanta in Huntsville when I was still in high school. You should go to Atlanta because the music industry is a thing there and you can probably find something to use your talent on. And so between English being the thing I was always good at in music, I figured, okay, I can maybe find a way into marketing in the music industry and do something. And um, interned all over the place. So I was actually like, uh, my pathway to journalism goes through Lil John, who was my internship boss when he used to be the vice president of A&R at So So Deaf Recordings. And I kind of like got picked out of 200 something people for writing a good essay and getting the letters of recommendation stuff. So Lil John was my internship boss. So I, my first internship in life was with Lil John before he was the king of crunk. Um, <laughs> I was. So this is like early '90s when, like, this was 1996. Oh my this god! So like, Atlanta hip hop was like peaking. Oh yeah, it was. It was becoming National a serious matter. thing. Yes, yeah. it was. Mm -hmm. It was moving from just a dungeon family organized noise outcast and goodie mob thing, hidden secret, to secret. Lil John and So So Def doing this, and it kind of meshed with. The Freaknik times as well, because there was an album like the So So Deaf Bass All Stars, mm -hmm. and it had like Mod Boo, which everyone loves today, and um, a few other songs that are still big hits, but that fast paced dance music that was taking off. And Lil John was really the guy behind that, so I kind of saw this wave starting. Um, and from there, I was like, when I went from So So Deaf to Radio One, so I interned at Hot 97.5, which was Atlanta's first hip hop, only hip hop station. And so it was me. And Chris Lover Lover and Poon Daddy. Oh my God. And uh, Lala, who is now Lala wow. Anthony, but she was the she was the music director's assistant. And the music director was Shaka Zulu. Isn't she Luda's sister? No, well, they just call each other brother and sister from, oh. from being there at the radio station. Okay, okay. So yeah, so I, would, I was intern for Ryan Cameron back when all of those folks were interns or assistants. 
Um, and then I went from there to, I was trying to get at LaFace Records. So I got, uh, I got to a place called Silent Sound Productions, which was the producer, Silent Sound, Silent Sound Productions was a guy named, uh, Silent Partner Productions was a guy named Daryl Simmons. And Daryl Simmons was quite literally Babyface and L.A. Reid's silent production partner. And they wrote me a letter of recommendation to get an internship at LaFace where I got hired as a copywriter after my internship. So <laughs> at the same point, around 97, I was starting to get published writing articles and I was writing stuff for ads and for CD stickers and for trade magazines for Outkast, Goody Mob, Pink, TLC, and Usher and those folks. Wow. And so that was what I was going to do. And I ended up getting hired full-time at LaFace. And LaFace moved, well, LaFace closed, and the president of LaFace, L.A. Reid, moved to New York to become the president of Arista Records. I didn't go with them to New York. I stayed here, and there was nothing really going on in the media landscape. So I got a CNN internship, did that, and then moved back to Huntsville. And during the time I was back in Huntsville, I just was like, this city sucks. And I left this city on purpose. In when I was 17 years old to go to college for the music industry and for college. But I decided while I was there, I was working at the Huntsville Times writing, uh, well, I was a contributor at the Huntsville Times writing entertainment stories, and I was doing radio there. And I was just like, if I don't get back to Atlanta soon, and this was between 2001 and 2004, I'm going to miss when it happens. Because having been there as long as I was and doing as much, I knew that Atlanta was nowhere near what it was going to be, which I think is the time we're in now. Um, so that's, that's really like, you know, what got me back into it. I moved back in. I had to reestablish myself media wise. Uh, a lot had changed. So I was doing some copywriting. I was doing some small freelancing, but I was actually bartending uh, at Hands in East <laughs> Cobb and um, where else? Like all kinds of places, nowhere good. All chains, all chains up in East. I, I mean, the the Hooligans Monte Cristo though is nothing to laugh at. Hooligans used to have some pretty good food. It was just people found out, oh yeah, they're a chain, but they got away with that for a while. Like if you had a Hooligans in your neighborhood, it was like, oh, oh we're going to we're going to Hooligans tonight. Just you wait. <laughs> it used so. to be right there at Colony <laughs> Square, right? Yeah, yeah, it did. It sure did. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I did that, and I always was a a bartender or a server in a restaurant as I was trying to reestablish myself as a writer. And so for years, that whole time, 2004 to 2008, and a friend of mine found out about Thrillist hiring for someone that was looking for an Atlanta, they were looking for an Atlanta bureau chief to, to launch. And so I talked to them and long story short, they ended up hiring me in 2008 and we launched in 2009 january and it was just off to the races from there it was just brutal brutal kind of every single day you have to write a recommendable story for people in atlanta to know the best actionable thing to do that day and no one could have written about it before you like you could not be scooped. They would kill your story. So for four years, I quite literally had to beat everyone in Atlanta for this insane. It was stupidly stressful. Um, but that's, that's kind of because of that, I look back on it and it's like, I, I had a period where I looked back on it. And I was like, this was some complete bullshit. Uh, but it gave me an opportunity to quickly and, and aggressively get into the scene of Atlanta. And at that time, there were so many good restaurants that were opening. Mm -hmm. And I'm, the three that I got cut, I only had three stories that were cut because they were scooped. And that was Bistro Nico, Miller Union, and um, um, Empire State South. And those are pretty significant places. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of was like, you really had, I really had to just run around covering all these places, but it was just such a, a big range of food and restaurants and new stories and all this stuff. And from there, I kind of just started like naturally leaning in because it was such a story. And if I was going to have these stories on the side, I had to scoop people. But 
then I got invited to this thing called the Southern Food Writing Conference. And a friend of mine, she wasn't able to go. She was a GM at, um, at a joystick. Amelia Wright used to be Amelia Turney. But Amelia had a ticket. She couldn't go. She was like, you should go to this thing. Like, you would love it. And just coolness of her, who she is just gave me this ticket. It was hundreds of dollars as conventions or conferences are. I drive to Knoxville and I go and it kind of just hit me that I was one of 10 black people in that room. And it was just like, I really wasn't expecting that. I don't know what I expected, but seeing just, and, and, and all of the other people have now won James Beard Awards. It was Osai. It was um, Tony Tipton Martin. It was Adrian Miller. It was, it was like everybody there was like somebody who had been there. And so I'm like the super new young, don't know what I'm doing and just watching these things. And I was like, oh shit. And I came back here and I was just like, I'm in a really different position to be covering food and covering restaurants. And I didn't realize how alone I was until that moment. And so I remember going back a couple of years later to that same thing. So I, like, I want to see how it is and how it has changed. And the change was the conversations on the, you know, the panels, uh, Sean Chavis, um, all of these people, in, including the black writers, Adrian Miller, of course, did another present, did another slide deck. Uh, Tony Tipton did a slide deck and said, Sean, but everyone else, the whole time we're talking about the contributions of African-Americans to the culinary world. And I'm just watching and I'm like, this is now getting weird because <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't weird before, it's now like, okay, you're, you're making it, you're making the case of how important and how there is no American culinary canon without the contributions of black chefs who did not get credit historically. Especially not in the South. Yes. I mean, especially in Southern in food writing conference. Uh, but I'm like, but what I'm seeing in front of me is, we're not allowed to tell the story. Or if we are, it's the very small group who have been selected on one possible end of the spectrum or have endured and survived and pushed to get where they are. But besides that, we're not even able to tell the story as we're talking about the unfairness of this not being the story. So that just really hit me like, who gets to tell the story? And from then on, I kind of became maybe a little bit more activist about saying, I want to, I want to not be the only person doing this that looks like me. And from there on, it's kind of like been going in a direction where I don't necessarily see myself as this activist voice. It's really kind of weird because I'm much more of a jokey we're all cool enough to like kind of rib each other playfully, but you know, really respect each other and do things. So honestly, I, I think I've become someone who is expected to speak up in ways that I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure that that's the right role. <laughs> you know I mean? Like maybe yeah. I'm happy to be part of that, but I'm, I'm, I'm also someone who very much genuinely thinks that the world is a better place when we all just naturally don't see it as being gatekept or barriers or all mm -hmm. of these things going on. So that's, that's there's a lot more food writers and restaurant critics out there. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for like 15, 16 years now, but there's like a lot of people out there that are much more beautiful writers and that are winning James Beards and are on a different fucking level, you know, than I am. And I don't aspire to be that. I mean, would I like to? Yes, but it's not what I'm good at. You know, yeah. I'm like good at finding restaurants. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. cooking food, you know, and talking about it because I'm, I'm, I'm just like obsessed, and that's why I do it. Right? Was that activism? Was that drive to not want to be the only black man telling the story lead you to creating Butter Atlanta? Well, um, well, first to be fair, Jennifer, you're incredibly good at what you do. So, <laughs> self-deprecation aside. 
that that we just need to establish a floor here and you're incredibly good at food writing and storytelling and all of the things you're you're amazing so that Thank we got we got to be real uh, then i did not start butter atl so oh, i thought you did i did because you're an editor and, right yes i'm the editor-in-chief um but butter was actually started by an agency here called dagger mm. and the purpose of butter was to show brands what it looks like when you actually intentionally make good content that is not so thirsty to do whatever the brand wants but organically does it because you have an appreciation of what good content is um after it launched it sort of had a it was it was trying to get some traction and an employee at the agency named brandon butler who was at the time, I believe, uh, you know, in, in something, I know his job, his role was VP of, of digital uh, delivery, I believe. But Brandon actually went to the, the leadership at uh, Dagger and said, hey, why don't you let me do this? Because I'm an Atlantan, I understand content, and I think you could be doing this a little bit better. And what he, what he says he did is what he did. He got them to give him a thousand dollars and a month, and he said, "Just leave me the hell alone and give me a thousand dollars." And <laughs> you'll appreciate this. His strategy, he says, was in addition to really honing in on what is Atlanta and what are Atlantans really like and what is actually true. He also went out and bought a bunch of journalists a bunch of drinks. <laughs> <laughs> you can never go wrong buying a bunch of journalists a bunch of drinks let me just tell you that i know the ethical things are there but no one's counting drinks i mean the irs there you, you can't get you can't write a drink off anyway maybe you can i don't know maybe i've done it but um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah brandon actually should get the credit for turning butter into into what it became and i he invited me to come and work with him and so between he and I, and there's a, a there's, there's a team at Butter. We're about, you know, about six, uh, you know, main folks at Butter. But yeah, it's basically a love letter to the city of Atlanta. It's like, you know, who you really are, Atlanta, and that's okay. We're with you. Um, we, but it's we so don't spot on. I mean, it is, I mean, I don't like any other Atlanta account. I mean, and obviously I'm in good company because Killer Mike shouted you guys out last time yeah. he was live in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it is, it's just, it's, it's so spot on on what it is. Like, and, and also like, I love the merch and mm -hmm. I, and I love the aesthetic. Like, I mean, it's the kind of stuff that it, it is a love letter to Atlanta, but it feels like the merch can be a love letter from Atlanta. Like I have friends that live in Australia and I send them like the t-shirts, like city of Atlanta and they love it because it's, because Atlanta is, you know, it's like a hidden secret, which a lot of people don't get. You know? Yeah. And, and like you said, Atlanta's much fucking cooler than it used to be when I grew up. Like that's, I just wrote that down when you said that. And I want to circle back. Like Atlanta definitely feels like it is having its heyday, its golden age. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a cool place. And again, not being a native, but being from, you know, the cities that surround Atlanta within its kind of transportation hub radius of like quick four or five hour trip max, it, it's a it, it's such a city on a hill for the southeast. It's just like you're not really doing it. It's the New York of this of this region. I hate to say that because, you know, we're not supposed to be feeling like we're lesser than New York City, but it's like, you know, if you can make it in Atlanta, you can make it in the south. And it feels like this this aspirational town, but it's an aspirational town that really does have a much more open armed approach to welcoming people than a lot of other cities. And the way I can justify saying that is because even with the rising cost of living, even with the fact that the housing market is is wild right now, even with all the development, even with the gentrification, all of that, it is easier to survive a six month period of what the hell am I going to do in my career in Atlanta than it is in San Francisco, New York city, Chicago, DC, mm -hmm. Miami, mm -hmm. LA, any of those cities, mm -hmm. you are just going to have a much lower cost of, of, of looking for success. And so that's and one a better of the things quality I think. Of life and a much better of quality of life. You're mm -hmm. going to have the four seasons of the calendar. You're going to have uh, so many food options 
that you can kind of find your niche if you're willing to drive maybe about 25 minutes you know you might it might not be in your neighborhood but there's it's not too far um but i think it's just it's come a long way because of that there's there's true there are true ways to get into atlanta and you don't have to be at the top of the pyramid to enjoy a cool and and fulfilling quality of life Mm -hmm. and it still has that southernness of taking its time you don't you don't feel like you're on the go and you have to out hustle everyone as you would in some of these other cities. And, you know, you can be in Buckhead and around all of the glass buildings, or you can be a few minutes outside the perimeter with a fishing pole, you know? So I, I think all of that funkiness of the South and the transportation hub of things and the mixture of people and I mean, the amount all of immigrants for me is what makes Atlanta. The, I mean, just like, you know what? I like to eat as like my colleague because we both write for Eater Atlanta yeah. um, about restaurants together. Um, I mean, it's there's just so much variety here now. It is, I, I mean, the abundance of like, we never had Filipino Laotian like 10 years ago. It was like when I moved back from San Francisco because I used to work in marketing for Old Navy brand after Emory and then I went to culinary school and then was a cook. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, in San Francisco, it was like anything, anything you wanted, you know? And then I came back to Atlanta and there, I started seeing all these holes. But now we have Nepalese. We, ha- I mean, we just have so much. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, I remember going to LA uh, years ago and having Peruvian chicken and being so sad that I'm like, oh, wait, I'm not going to find Peruvian chicken easily in Atlanta if I find it at all at that time. And you're right now. There are certainly places. Yeah, but I just, just oh my yeah, God. take a took a minute, but um, yeah, I agree. Like there's, and that's one of the stories of Atlanta's food that you're just gonna continue to have is just people have not paid as much attention or enough respect outside of people like yourself to it's not just a soul food or fancy steakhouse and a shrimp kind of place. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a lot more, and it's still booming. Um, yeah, we're not all barbecue and biscuits for people right. that are listening outside of Georgia. No, we've got good no. barbecue and good biscuits, but you know, yeah. you're going to need a vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to need one. <laughs> oh, we really do have like one of the biggest Korean um, restaurants, like the uh, concentrations, I believe, outside of Oakland or mm-hmm. outside of Chicago, I want to say. I remember reading a metric, which I think is fascinating. And obviously, as a Mexicana, like I'm very happy because we have like all of the mexican food here i mean we really do now especially we have like all these like subtypes of tacos like birria which you see and tijuana tacos and i mean for me it's it's a great city to eat in um but speaking of food since this is a podcast about food with food in the name um like when when did you know that food was gonna be a thing for you Mm. that it was not just something you like like to go like eat but like it was something you were really interested in studying because that's part of the job, right? It is. Um, I think my, my, my mother's family, my mother and my father's families, they're, they're both on opposites on, on, on the opposite sides of the border between Alabama and Tennessee at the North. So she's from a small town called Bridgeport, Alabama. My dad is from a small town called South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, which is where lodge cast iron is made. So I've, I grew up, in this area where various people in both sides of my families have maybe worked at the foundry, you know, or someone did. So we would even get cast iron as Christmas presents. So, you know, like they would usually end up upside your cousin's head <laughs> later on Christmas day. Cause you, you weren't cooking. They weren't letting you touch this hot metal. He could barely lift it, but it's a great <laughs> weapon. Um, but you know, that was part of it is that in that area, there was a lot of, really like there was a lot of seafood coming off of you know the fresh waters and you know like the lakes around uh the tennessee valley and there was also some great biscuits and all this stuff so all the great things you can do with cast iron which is naturally near where my family uh sort of originated from in north alabama and tennessee so there was that and then also i mean in southern food i was i was sort of my mother really really like 
cooked all the time and cooked way more than she needed to, even though I'm an only child. I have a half brother, but he's 11 years older. And my mom and dad got divorced when I was about one and a half, hence us moving from Nashville to Huntsville. She got a job teaching at Alabama A&M University. Um, she would cook and make enough food for her students. So she was always cooking and always cooking more than was necessary. And I remember she was very excited. She was like, oh, the office, we're finally getting a refrigerator for the office. She was so excited about how much food she could now stock in there for the students. <laughs> so watching her always cooking and always with a lot of food and always having students coming in and out of the house, you know, you just see that and you're like, okay, well, you know, I really like this one thing you make. What is that? Well, that's gumbo. Well, can we have gumbo every day? I mean, like, I really like it. She's like, well, I have to devein the shrimp and I hate doing that. And that's one of the reasons we don't have it very often. If you would be willing to devein the shrimp, we could have gumbo more often. So I started to devein shrimp. And, you know, from that point, you're there working with your mom with a cutting board and nasty shrimp shells. And you get used to the fingers in the nasty doo-doo running up and down the back of a shrimp. And you just like, but the reward is going to be so worth rubbing shrimp poop all through your fingers. You're, you're going to get a really good pot of gumbo. Mm -hmm. And my mom's gumbo is really, like, really, really, really good. And so I, I make gumbo quite often, too. Um so I would say that is a lot of it. And also, I just am naturally inclined to vegetables. And so I was the kid who kind of used my creative thing and would make salads. I was kind of picky. And back then, they would the, the green vegetable a lot of times was boiled green beans, which I really despise to this day. So I would make salads. And then I was like, you know, salads. Oh, look at this orange stuff and this yellow stuff and this red stuff and you would just make it colorful and i became oh for thanksgiving or whatever mike you should make the salad so i'm a kid with a job now like ooh, i'm making the salad so you know very good just parenting making very good parenting yeah, so yeah that's, <laughs> as, a, as a dad now you know getting them to and help i do that i yeah. do that now mm -hmm. it, it really is she's she's involved she made just last week my daughter sienna she made uh sauteed spinach for the first time and she was asking me the week before so what do you do you you do what and i'm like well you only need this much oil and you only need to turn the pan up this way because you know since spinach will shrivel down so you kind of want to like make sure you understand that you're going to need more than you think because it's going to come down and when it starts to turn green you just kind of move it around a little bit let all those juices from your garlic and your oil and um, just a little salt and pepper and you know just flip it but turn the heat off because if not it's going to overcook so just from that extra kind of warmth from the pan and she's just zoomed in on and everything. <laughs> so I'm just like, yes, like she's going to eat well. She's going to live long. She's going to save money. When I blow all the money, I can move in with her and eat spinach <laughs> all day. I've got my whole life ahead. of me. <laughs> so what role did food play in your family and does it play in your family today with your wife and daughter? It, um, I cook the majority of the food um, because I'm so used to cooking a lot. My wife definitely does cook. Um, she was just down there making some sausage this morning. Well, some heating up some sausage from Delia's. Shout out to Delia's. Delia's uh, frozen sausage is just amazing. Uh, but but she, she cooks every once in a while, but I do a lot of the cooking. And it's, to me, it's one of those things, again, I'm, I'm showing my daughter that we can eat really well and we can be smart about budgeting and not lose out on anything. So when I got a sous vide circulator out of the clearance aisle at Kroger, because I'm walking by and I'm like, is that a sous vide circulator in the, in the clearance? I don't even know they sold those at Kroger. I don't think they should be selling them at Kroger. <laughs> and it was at the clearance aisle. I don't think anyone knew what it was. And I saw it and I looked down and it was 19 bucks. So I get home and, you know, they can tell you that day I got home like, oh, 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 you know, so it's that kind of thing. I mean, I can show her and just like, here's how we're going to do this. And it's going to make our steaks incredible. Um, it, it plays a lot of roles. She, she can see me cooking. My wife, um, she probably has a very, you know, American style of, you know, dining. She's a, you know, um, she likes burgers. She likes fries. She likes stews that are really thick, but she doesn't like soup. 
Um, so we just, I just try to stay on my toes. I try to give them what they want. And I also really enjoy the fact that by doing this, we can also stay healthy and we can not have to worry about missing out on a lot of, oh, restaurants are not really in great shape right now. They're doing their best and they're fighting it out, but there's a lot going on there and we have to go in there and risk coronavirus and everything. So that's really one of my main things. I'm really happy to be able to cook and to still provide something of that experience um, here at home. And I'm hoping and I'm pushing for the restaurants to make it through all of this, but it's tough out there. It's really tough. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman. So speaking of restaurants, you just uh, did the best restaurants issue with Christian Lauterbach, um, who's been a longtime critic at Atlanta Magazine and with their deputy editor, Sam Morley, who replaced Mara Shalhoub. Um, what, what, what did you guys kind of like glean from where we are now as we enter year three of the pandemic, if you can believe that? Um, well, the, the good thing is both Sam and Christian, they, they each have different perspectives. So I, I would say I can certainly tell you what I gleaned and what I gleaned was it was really important to give the people who had kept up a certain level of we will still strive for excellence more than anything else because it was so hard for them in the past couple of years. And that's the vantage point of working in restaurants, as you know, can mean a lot for your understanding of what type of systems have to be firing at complete 100 to even get close to something excellent. And it, it just, it was so hard. I mean, I, I watched so many places almost close, quietly close and not say anything because maybe they, it was just really tough. It was such a mess of who's even open and what are their hours. To me, it was really important to give, you know, to give honor to places that really knocked it out as best as you could imagine a restaurant could during that time. So that was for me, I was, I was really happy. There were definitely places that I wanted to include that just were sort of in a place to say, as much as I want and as much as I know you're great, it's, it's, you're probably still working through some things and you might not even need that type of coverage right now as you get things going, even though obviously more tables and more, you know, it, it just, it's such a complicated time. And again, I, I, I don't even know if these places would be open by the time the issue published. So yeah, that's another thing I was saying. It's like, so thinking I was, it's so tricky to do a best new restaurants issue period, you yeah. know, because I mean, I know Christian, I had her on the show. I mean, I know she wasn't really eating out for a minute, you know, and then she was, and I'm not sure she is right now with the surge with Omicron. Cause if you're listening to this and it's a month in the future and there's a new variant, we're dealing with Omicron right now. Today. Um, <laughs> cause who the hell knows where we'll be at in a month. But, um, it just like speaking in that regard, like that's how it feels. Restaurants are probably feeling like who the hell knows where we're going to be in a month. And it's, it's a really weird time. I mean, do you still, I mean, are you still eating out at all? I am. I am. I am as, as one would expect, I hope, hopefully expect I'm doing all I can to be extraordinarily careful. I mean, the sanitizer is in my door panel. Uh, it's in my, you know, glove compartment. The mask stays on, you know, I'm in and out. I'm opening doors with my feet. I'm doing all of those things. Um, I'm not eating indoors right now un unless indoors is also somehow outdoors, <laughs> you know, like, and, and, yes. and, and I'm really not doing that. I mean, it's just, I can't, Unfortunately for me, I can't get over the fact that so many people are throwing caution to the wind. It's not the restaurant's fault, I believe. They're stuck in a really hard place. But I do think as a public, a lot of us are failing to rise to the occasion of keeping each other safe. And I just refuse to put myself in a situation where in order to have a meal outside my house, I'm willing to put myself in a pandemic's way. And so I'm, I'm, I'm mainly getting carry out. Um, 
I've been in some places where the outside, and, and we've had a very mild winter, uh, which probably isn't great for Earth, but is not bad for dining out it's in January. It's about to be the coldest it's been in Atlanta since 1988 this weekend. I know, this weekend, yeah, yeah. Matter of <laughs> fact, I'm glad you said that. I need to get some firewood because uh, <laughs> it, it does get real in our house, our old house. But um, yeah, I think it's it's a uh, it's just it's it's kind of just I have to commend everyone who's been able to make it work. I have to really say that you know it it's such a daring time, especially with these new restaurants opening. You know they're still coming, like you know like uh, it, they're just they're still coming. It's it's so much to like it's hard to even shout out one that's coming because there's a lot of them coming in a pandemic, and I'm like, gosh, that's brave. So, you know, uh, hats off. Absolutely. I just wonder off. if the model will change, you know, but I do think there's a lot of people that are just like sick of being locked down or they've had COVID and they feel protected or they are boosted and they feel protected. Um, I was starting to eat out of restaurants until I got COVID, but I don't think I got it from a restaurant. I think I right. got it inside of my house or someone painting right. my house, even though I was doing exactly, I mean, my, my friends would call me a germaphobe on a good day, you know, yeah. before this. <laughs> so, I mean, I used to like sanitize my plane seat before COVID. Um, yeah. But I do think there is something to be said that it's everywhere now. But I mean, restaurants in Atlanta are definitely dealing with it. As as you saw, I just reported that the Watchman's is closing or Watchman's mm -hmm. is closing at Krog. Um, and it feels like another notable restaurant is closing every day for COVID or just because they can't do it anymore. Yeah, yeah. You would not at all know in some places that we are going through a pandemic. And I, I'm not... I've really pushed myself to not be judgmental about that. I just don't put myself in those environments. You know, I'm just like, okay, maybe all of you have had COVID and it doesn't matter to you. Maybe everyone in here is vax boosted, super immune and signed a waiver. I don't know what's going on, but I don't have the information. I just know I'm going to be on the other side of the door. Yeah. And that's, I, I have to see it that way. But again, it's so it's so tough. One thing I will say though, I would hope if there is like how you're saying, like it, if it if it changes the scene at all, we sometimes in Atlanta it becomes a thing where restaurants are just uh, another way for folks to have an income stream or just a bunch of oh it's a business and we can just do this. I would like to see maybe less of the whatever restaurants, and so we. It, it, Atlanta is in this uh, before the pandemic. I was really getting excited because Lazy Betty was like, it, it, there was talk of Lazy Betty. Lazy Betty came to Atlanta. It had this expectation and they delivered. And it was like at the end of that year, I felt like this, this raised pressure on a lot of places in Atlanta. Like there's now a place here that it's not the, I, I wouldn't argue anyone about whether it is the best place in Atlanta or not, but it's certainly one of the best places in Atlanta. And to me, it put a lot of restaurants on notice and saying, you now need to step it up. Mm -hmm. And we're not even trying to have a buckhead life type of sheen, even though we have Michelin starred, you know, talent. So you need to step it up. If we can do it over here, you know, on the east side, you can do it in Buckhead or wherever else. Well, it was ballsy. I, was really I mean, excited. it was like literally a tasting menu only restaurant. Yeah. You know, yeah. on the east side. Like yeah. it was when when fine dining in Atlanta had become very unfashionable. Yes. You know, at that level, it just had become very unfashionable. It just, people didn't want to. Atlanta's a casual town. Yes. You know, I guess there is the fancy part. Like people, there are. We do love to like show out with our outfits, yeah, you know, but like yeah. we want to feel comfortable, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that was it. I mean, so I was really excited for the momentum of we can do things that are not necessarily making Atlanta categorize itself, but still very excellent. And then the pandemic came and it was like, oh, so watching us cycle through you know, what type of restaurants will thrive and what will not, because now the fine dining restaurants 
are, you know, struggling to keep up the level of quality and service that mm-hmm. is the main reason for them to survive. And there are takeout places that, as you said, are killing it. And even some standard, they just, they have a model that allows them to seriously serve this time that we're in. So I, I hope whatever shakes out is something that makes sense for the talented people who are really giving it their all. And speaking of talented people, I mean, something I touched on earlier is Southern food and soul food are just, I mean, they were created by black cooks, you know, why don't we have more black cooks and chefs in Atlanta restaurants or rising to the level, um, not of having multiple, but, you know, getting those James Beard noms, you know, getting recognition, not only in the city, but on a national level, we do, but it's disproportionately white. Yes. And it's, 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 it's that, it's that very easy to see red thread that runs through the fabric is that we are nowhere near outside of racism. Racism just has a very slick way of operating. And I always say there are black chefs all over Atlanta. They are just stuck in the kitchen on the line somewhere and their opportunity is being held back for whatever reason. But they're everywhere. Atlanta is full of black chefs. It's it's they're everywhere. They're in they are why don't they get to make the jump if all these okay, if all these execs and restaurateurs are saying the lip service about Black Lives Matter and, you know, we're you know equal, you know, we wanna have like women and anyone can have a position, how come they're not rising to the top? Because it really is lip service. Because it really is lip service. Because it's not it's not honest. They do not want to really do this. They, if they did, they'd do it. I just, it's really easy to do the right thing. That's the smart thing. That's the obvious thing. A talented person in your kitchen should be elevated so that you can get recognition from the diners that this place is fucking killing it. But you just won't. <laughs> I'm like, okay. You know, and I just, I, I'm like, whenever, if, if someone asks me, I, I just, I'm always like, I don't like to contort myself for what's obvious. Like, you could do it, but you just don't. And maybe it's What do you mean, contort yourself for what's obvious? I mean, you know, kind of look around the thing that's right in your face. I mean, you don't want to... It's, 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 of course, hard and could be slanderous to just say, you are racist. But if you smell like, look like, dress like, sing like, cook like a racist, or run the chef's like a racist restaurant manager, you might be racist. And maybe might is the wrong word. Maybe there's an easier way to just get right to the truth so I don't have to feel uncomfortable when I look at you and be like, that's my buddy over here, Steve. He's a racist. That's so-and-so. Like, you know, like, let's be who we are. That's what I love about being in the South. The racist is a lot of times next door. And you may work with them or you know each other's kids and everything, but at least I know you were racist. And at least I know underneath that, you know, I'm just as human as you are. Mm-hmm. And so I would love for Atlanta to stop looking for any other way of explaining what doesn't make sense for a reason. And it is tends to be because there's a, a need to look away from a problem that we're going to have to start solving in incremental steps, such as elevating people to more visibility and leadership. And that is stop being biased. Stop thinking that someone can't handle it. Maybe they have not been prepared to handle it because they've never gotten an opportunity to show the talent and have someone be patient with them. So I always look at that. Someone had to start somewhere to get into leadership. Talent is everywhere. But to get into leadership, someone has to be given a chance to be elevated. And they're going to probably need to be trained. Same kind of thing happens with food journalists. It's hard when people come to me, well, Mike, who are the black food journalists we should hire? And I'm like, well, fuck, they don't, a lot of them don't exist because we have to make them because they don't even know that they could get into food journalism because no one ever showed them the door. And they don't see themselves in other journalists like you. They mm-hmm. clearly don't. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm constantly pushing you know, I had a fight with the NABJ in which they're, they seem to be turning around now. So I will give them credit for that. But that was my problem. It's hard for me to advocate for more black food journalists if the National, National Advocacy Group for Black Journalism does not even see the value in food journalism. So there's no pipeline. 
And therefore, it just stops. And if you're not pushing, no one else is going to pull. Uh, so I don't know. I, I'd like to see the excuse of there being a bunch of chefs who are good enough to be making the food, but not good enough to be pulled up into the level of being like, let's do it. If you said you were going to do it in 2020 and 2021, then why the hell isn't it happening in 2022? And if you're not I mean, going like, to do I it, feel, give them access I, to capital. Let them open their own shit because the banks could help. So there's yeah, a lot and of there's plenty of black diners in Atlanta that want to support black businesses as yeah. we've seen, you know, yeah. I mean, pinky cool. Can't stop opening concepts. You yeah. Know? I mean, downtown Oregon. college park, you know, uh -huh. look at, look, look at downtown college park. Mm -hmm. And it's just a whole thing that came up. One thing that is interesting. And I, I'm sure you saw this as well. There were some places in Atlanta that were kind of historically, you know, dead zones for restaurants that black chefs or restaurateurs came into and turned into some of the hottest places in the city. Mm -hmm. And that to me was really revealing of, of showing again, Atlanta has a lot of black diners. So if they see themselves, you don't even need to come and do something original necessarily. You just need to have good food that people want to eat. And if they come back, it should be at least somewhere near what they had the last time. But there are a lot of black places that came and opened. I mean, look at what I um, lived on Peter Street in Castleberry Hill for four years. Yeah. <laughs> so like, but I think I went too early. And I feel like now, I feel like now it's about to be what they always thought it was going to be. Now, because like Mercedes hadn't been built then, it was, you know, being built when I was living there. I was like on the early side, <laughs> the early yeah. side. I just, you know, I wanted, because it was so lofty and cool and. No mas was there, Nam Lee from Adarm and Luska <laughs> and everything. Had a sushi place there. I used to go there all the time, you know, and it was really fun. I mean, Casper Hill was fun, but then like it just went downhill. And now I feel like it's on the upswing mm -hmm. and that it's going to be. And then College Park, you know, I mean, honestly, the first time I ever had an oyster was at Oscars in College oh, wow. Park, which was <laughs> one of my favorites in Atlanta. I used to go down there all the time. Wow. You know? Yeah. Main Street. Yeah. I mean, it's. It's really, it's, it's, and I, I just think that there's a lot of, there, there seems to be this understanding that's going on. And that is, we are absolutely going to have to take advantage of this moment. When I say we, I mean, black folks saying we as restaurateurs and chefs are going to have to take advantage of this visibility and go ahead and do it now. So the food trucks coming is great because it's putting you in the pipeline. The pop-ups that are going on, like Stolen Goods and with Humble Mumble and all of those people this who are really talented. So good. Yeah. Posted some sandwich yesterday, I think, and it was just like stacked. I mean, like I a mean, New York sandwich. It looks so good. Justin was like critical to Wonder Kids first year. He That's was what I critical. hear. He was, That's oh my hear. gosh, he was, I didn't expect to enjoy the meal. Beth and I, Beth McKibben, shout out to Edith, the homie, Beth and I and Paul, her husband, we were all there. And I was just like, she was the one like, you got to come. Like you haven't been it, you got to come. And I was like, this wasn't supposed to be this good. Cause it's like wonder <laughs> kid. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, this is a themed place. We're going to have fun, but it wasn't supposed to be as good as it was. Mm -hmm. And I remember meeting Justin, but yeah, I, I, I'd love to see that. I love the pop-ups, food trucks the get into this space no one's ever succeeded here but we will we will and and that's what it's going to take no one's going to give it to anybody no they're not but atlanta does seem like if it's going to happen it needs to happen here and maybe the rest of the south will follow because like me if you're driving around i mean we do we still do feel like we're still light years ahead of other towns in the south culinarily not you know competitive wise but i mean we're the most well-rounded, you know, you go to Asheville, there's no Asian food, you know, like, I mean, Huntsville, I, I mean, I do love, there's that little pocket now of like, it's like this Korean pocket right outside, <laughs> you know, or, right outside, yeah. you know, <laughs> where it's just like all these right? homestyle restaurants. <laughs> it's like so great, but just, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I do, I do want to hear, you know, what you're loving right now, since you said you did want to talk about that. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're being more careful, um, but you're obviously in the mix. Like what's exciting you right now? Um, well, I, 
I am a, I'm really excited about some things that I'm not able to really support as much as I want to, such as again the pop-ups, but I'm I'm really happy to see them going. Um I'm I'm excited about uh Nappy Roots opening at Lantucky um and 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 hip and hops coming at the same time. So again, I'm what's I'm, that hip and hop for people? Hip and hops know. is uh it just opened a few months ago in uh actually it's closer to summer, if not early fall but it's uh the first black owned brick and mortar brewery in the state of georgia in east atlanta village so it just came with when it arrived there was just like so much like oh look at this like you know and, they, and they're doing you know a good job of being a place where not only oh this is the new black brewery everyone is going and that's really important that it does not become the only the black people's thing. I do think in Atlanta, sometimes that happens that if, if the crowd overwhelmingly leans towards the black diner and the black audience, everyone sort of takes a second look before they feel comfortable going and don't do that. People, if you take one thing from me today, as much as I may sound like, you know, like black, black y'all, I mean, no, I really want everyone to hang together. I, that's why I get so passionate. I don't think we should miss out on the opportunity to hang with each other and try all this stuff in Atlanta. So I'm excited to see the opportunities for that with, um, with that Lantucky opening. It's the hip hop group, Nappy Roots Brewery. And it's beautiful inside and it's immaculately, it's organized. It's like, it's, it is, it looks way better than a lot of breweries do. If you know what the back end, back end of a brewery looks like, it's kind of gross it's gorgeous in there and there you have amazing beers they took the time and built up um and i think um i'm excited again about just the entrepreneurial spirit another friend of mine um fred castellucci um i really admired how they have been active and how he pushed through uh the pandemic it seems to have been hard for everybody but uh, I'm really excited for Muho or is it Mujo? Oh the sushi so place excited. that he's opening. That place is going to, I can, I will It sustained now. me on sushi during the pandemic. I would like yeah. splurge on their omakase. And it's actually, the guy used to work at Shuko in New York, which is one of my uh, favorite sushi yes. places up there. And it's, if you don't know, it's like a Ido style sushi, which means that it's aged. I mean, all fish is aged, you know, but there is no fresh fish. Um, in sushi, but it, this is aged with a specific thing, so it has a very different taste. Oh my god, it's really it's excellent. Good, it, <laughs> it is like woof. And I remember when I got it again. It's one of those things where I was like, it was carry out. It it was a pop up during the pandemic. And I was like, carry out sushi should not be this good. Like I know carry out sushi very well, and it can be great, but sometimes it's not, and you know what you're getting into. But you carrying know? out a makase is a challenge. Oh, and Fred, you as you that? said, I mean, he's like from a restaurant family. You know, it's all of them. Um, they own um, Cooks and Soldiers, Iberian Pig, if you don't know him by name. Uh, but, I mean, they were able with that packaging better than anyone else. Because I know other sushi restaurants, they were like, really? You like their packaging better? <laughs> yeah. I was like, yes. Yeah. It's beautiful. The bamboo. The 100%. little... The little the little soy sauce thing with the with the soy sauce in the plastic. I love it. Felt it felt fancy as hell in it your did. house. Like, it, it felt did. Cool. And it was it was a bright moment too. And that part of the pandemic, it was very scary. And it was like, what is happening and everything? And to get this omakase, it's like like you said, you could set it all out and do your mise en place. Like, ooh, look at me. Like I'm about to dip <laughs> this in this. So it was <laughs> I was so I'm I'm really excited for them to open. I know that's really closely around the corner. So, so again, if you're going to take your wife to mm -hmm. on a date, where would you take her? And if you're going to take your daughter on a daddy-daughter date, where would you go? Two separate places. That's very much. Um, I would take my wife back to... Um, the last place we went on a date was the Chastain for our anniversary. Um, I would say the next place we would go would probably be... It wouldn't be sushi because we went on a sushi date and it was kind of like, okay, it was an omakase. And I was like, huh, okay. Um, that's a good question. It would probably be a Thai restaurant, like a really good Thai restaurant. So okay. I'm always looking around and um, I, I would say that I would probably take her to a new Thai restaurant. that seems like it's kind of got some traction. Uh, I might actually go around looking for recommendations myself on that one because 
I'd and love to be pop. surprised. Yeah. Then that, that yeah. and they have the fluffiest coconut cake you've ever had in your life. It's okay. like whipped cream and like fresh coconut. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. My daughter, uh, she would probably want, um, she really likes burritos. She likes raging burrito a lot nice. in Decatur Square. So we do daddy daughter dates. Uh, we were doing once a month until the pandemic came and we started kind of cautiously doing them. We're kind of on pause again right now because of Omicron, mm -hmm. but we, we take rides on the train on Marta. And it's just her and I, and she loves Marta and she studies it and knows the stops. And to me, did she like, ask for Marta as a reward for getting her vaccine? Yes, she did. She did. <laughs> and so I had to take her. I was like, you know what? We can go. And it was like a weekend. Traffic is low. So, you know, and she just loves it. She just, she Horrible. explores the city. She gets to know where she is. She's like, we haven't been to Bankhead Station yet, Daddy. And I'm like, well, we're going to work, work and go, but we can learn some things about, you know, city infrastructure and all that stuff if we go to the Bankhead Station. But she's very curious about it. And we always go somewhere. And it's always easy to go somewhere like a Decatur because you get out of the Marta Station and you got the deer and the dove, you got Raging Burrito, you got all mm -hmm. these other places, White uh, Bull. So uh, that's that's one of my favorite places to take her is just Decatur Square and let's pick out a place. And she will probably say Raging Burrito every time. If you were going to be on a desert island and you have to eat one thing for the rest of your life, it's like Groundhog Day. Every day you're going to eat the same meal. What is it? It's 100% my mom's gumbo. Okay. It's 100%. It's, it's, so it's sort of a mix-up. If you ask, you know, because I, I make gumbo a lot. I also make chiopino, so it's like, it's kind of close the way I make it. Um, but it's just stocked. It's like, it has chicken and it has sausage, but it also has a lot of seafood. So it has both. It does have a tomato kind of base, um, but it also, she can make her roux dark enough that it kind of makes it I, i've not matched it i cannot make it the color that she makes it um and you know she makes the room so fast and i'm like oh my god like how 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 so i've gotten a little bit faster but usually for me it takes me 45 minutes and the way i compensate is i put on some brass band music and i have a bottle of bourbon and i dance while i'm stirring up my you know roux and i think and that's how you're supposed work. to do it i think it that's written right. in recipe books to dance while right. you make gumbo yeah. i highly advise it you have a good time <laughs> but that would that would be it i would eat i would eat her seafood gumbo and i literally like i would probably need because if they're not any vegetables i probably wouldn't make it very long because literally when she makes it it's all i eat all day long so it would mm -hmm. be that and so do you have any pieces coming out or anything that you want to plug and promote? And where can people find you in your work? Well, yes, um, I have a story that I'm really excited about coming out at Eater Atlanta. Shout out to Beth McKibben again. Um, it should be out maybe in the next week or so. I may have some edits, but I think they're working on it. But it's actually a story that I wrote two years ago. Um, and it's about the legacy of Atlanta restaurants in protest movements. <laughs> and quite literally, it started while the pandemic was was kind of just going on. But there were the protests in the summer of 2020. And it has a lot of it has historical folks who were around in the days of Pascal's and Busy Bee. It has food historians talking about going how it, how it actually goes back to the beginnings of Atlanta through a man named Ransom Montgomery and wow. him being like one of the first restaurateurs, if not the first and being a black man, it's a, it's a really, it was a really cool story to write. And what I'm kind of really excited about it is because even the story itself kind of is an act of protest because it was written for Bon Appetit in that time. And Bon Appetit, you know, I'm sure they have a lot of change that's happened in their room, in their, in their editor's room now. I think now, they, press. I believe they do, they but, have, yeah. but I had to pull it from them because it literally was being filed when they were having a lot of issues. And I was just unwilling to be that guy and say, you know, but it's all good because I can write. It would, it would have hit at a very awkward time. And so I pulled it and was sitting on it. And through conversations with Beth, she was like, I'll buy it from you. And we redid it. And we got new people for right now. And I'm really excited about this story. I so can't wait to look read for it. that. Yeah. Eater Atlanta, sign in, check it out. And I'm also at Butter ATL, which is where I'm the editor in chief. And 
we just cover all things Super Atlanta. Um, so check me out there. It's butteratl.com. But most folks probably know the Instagram channel, which is at butter.atl. Um, and you are and that, on Instagram? Yes, I am at Mike Jordan ATL on Instagram. On Twitter, I am at Michael B. Jordan. So, and you also write for like Canopy, which was yes. amazing with Beth. And you write for a million other national publications like the Wall Street Journal. And so check out, you know, look out for his byline. And, and he always publishes his pieces on social too. Yeah, I, I, I've learned to not be silent in the face of writers who just do that kind of thing with stuff that they probably don't care about. And then they get a lot more assignments. So I'm like, uh-oh, better do a little marketing. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I really appreciate your time. And, you know, I have much respect for you. Yes. And also, I want to make sure that the audience knows that I super respect you and appreciate you as a writer and a friend. I just I really respect you. You're awesome. You're dope. I'm always happy to be invited to anything you're doing. So this was fun. We threatened to do it. Did it. Uh, we threatened. We threatened to do it. And we did it. So we did. We yes. did. Let's threaten. Yes. Let's make more threats. Okay. Yep. Well, it sounds good. I'm sure we'll have meetings soon for Eater. But um, well, thank you for being here, Mike. I hope you have a good one. You too, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Well, that's this week's episode. Thank you to Mike for joining me. And thank you to you for listening. If you want to keep up with me, you can find me as The Food That Binds or Jennifer Zeman on Instagram and Twitter. I'm mostly active on Instagram where you can keep up with where I'm eating uh, in Atlanta and beyond. Next week, I'm joined by Jordan Smelt and Katie Beringer of Lucian Books and Wine. Katie and Jordan are also a couple. So running a business together, being a couple, the pandemic, it's a great episode. Again, we'll be back next Sunday. And I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Binds. Thank you.